Uh, first of all, thanks to the university and to the reading in particular. Um, my talk uh, will be focused on uh, something underexplored and overlooked mostly, and that is the hardcore football supporters known as the ultras. Um, their role in the revolution has generally been recognized here and there, but the analysis of their part has been uh, almost non-existent actually. So this is very much, uh, in the beginning, it's, it's kind of a, of a descriptive paper, but I will also be putting in uh, a theoretical note towards the end. I'll be first be talking about the international contact, uh, context of the ultras phenomenon, uh, and then I'll be talking about how the ultras first emerged in Egypt in the course of the 1990s, and the role that they played in the revolution. Then the theoretical angle will be based on uh, Asef Bayat and his uh, work on uh, bottom-up politics or street politics and social movements. And in addition, if there is still time, which I very much doubt, uh, I may uh, put in a little discussion of horizontalism as just uh, presented by, um, by John, uh, because I think the ultras are a very good example uh, of uh, the concept of horizontal politics. All right, the paper is mostly based on uh, a book by Mohammed uh, Bashir, who is a ultra uh, himself, or a former ultra himself, uh, Mohammed Gamal Bashir, some documentary material published by Al-Ahram uh, Center for Strategic and Political Studies, and interviews uh, with ultras I intend to have in the summer. Uh, but now I've had some interviews with people who are in Egypt, but this was all over Skype, so it's still a work in progress. Uh, I hope to finish it this summer. All right. The ultras have not been researched a lot uh, in general. Only little research is done. Uh, they begin to emerge in the 1960s in Italy, if you don't count events in, in Brazil, where you can trace it back to the 1930s. Uh, of the literature, there is one report done uh, at request of the Council of Europe, which is, I think, the best <coughs> starting point for an overview of uh, ultra-culture in its European context. And the uh, definition that they provide is the following. They are particularly passionate, emotional, committed, and very active fans who are fascinated by a South European culture of spurring on their team and who have made it their job to organize a better traditional atmosphere in the football stadium in order to be able to support their team creatively and to the best of their ability. Now, there are two things here that need to be explained. I guess the South European culture that refers to the non-stop singing, drumming, and chanting, along with huge banners, <laughs> uh, flags, pyrotechnics, and something called terrace choreography. I'll show some pictures of that. The better and traditional atmosphere that points to the ultra's nostalgia for football mat matches as they were prior to the excessive marketing of football and its commercialization. The age group, you could say that's typically between 60 and 25 years old, mostly male but not exclusively. There is no overall dominance of any particular socio-economic class, which is contrary to what you find among hooligans, apparently. Um, the others have been, or are, sometimes confused with hooligans, which is sometimes understandable, but mostly uh, wrong. And also, when you look at the organization of the ultras, it's tends to be rather informal. We're not talking about official fan clubs. Actually, they uh, compete with the official fan clubs. There is no um, 
no real sense of membership, and there is no administration. Now, despite this loose web, the ultra groups do manage to exercise control and to engage in cooperation, also even in international cooperation. The ultra groups, they have their own spaces in the stadiums. These are spaces, usually the terraces, where you have no uh, chairs to comfortably sit, but just standing places. And this is where they organize a range of supporting activities, such as those I just mentioned, and some of which require, in fact, a lot of preparation, coordination, and a significant degree of discipline. Their section in the stadium is their territory, which they will defend against police or other supporters, and relations with the police are uh, almost automatically rather poor. All over Europe, they have these <coughs> slogans uh, with acronyms going uh, ACAB, which I want to pronounce. Um, but um, the, the image of the police is, is, has emerged almost everywhere as being the enemies of the ultras. So, notably, not just with the police relations are poor, but also with the club's official institutions, very often relations are sour. The ultras, they cultivate an, un an unconditional love for their club, but they lament the way in which managers have taken charge of the club, of the stadium, and of the game. This includes the club's management all the way up to the UEFA, who are all seen to be lined up to milk the game until the last penny of advertisement money. That's interesting because the international dimension of the commercialization of football is, I think, also what facilitates the international collaboration between ultra groups, who are steadily developing uh, a common language of protest against what they all call modern football. When you Look it up, you find websites uh, saying, well, there's of course the againstmodernfootball.com, but you also have um, the uh, Contre le Football Moderne and Gegen den Modernen Fußball, and of course you also have it in Dutch, and you, you also have in the book that I just mentioned uh, by Bashir, you have a whole chapter entitled Dittal Koral Hadith. Now, there is no general tendency for ultra groups to be uh, political of a particular kind, but to the extent that they are political, then more often than not, it is more tending towards the extreme right wing, but it's not uh, an absolute given. So when you look at the, uh, the information, uh, the literature about it, you find these aspects coming back again and again. It's a youthful group, they take a very strong uh, group identity in which they take a lot of pride to, to defend their good name in the stadium and outside. They stress their independence, also their financial independence. Well, for instance, well, I will talk about it later. And they have this anti-authoritarian uh, set of mind, uh, which also uh, comes with uh, the idea that they want to be uh, the original football supporters. Uh, it's a kind of a traditional notion, but specifically tradition in the sense that uh, they don't want to be part or be commercialized. Uh, culture of football. These are some pictures to just show you the amount of coordination that would be required to do uh, what ultras do. Um, it's usually behind the, the goal where you find uh, the ultras uh, having their place. This is in uh, Switzerland, which is one of the few places where they have arrangements where they can enter the stadium before the match begins in order to set up their uh, uh, well, devices as you, such as you find here. And here is a last one uh, with a slogan in Italian, 
which is a reference to something that I haven't mentioned uh, yet, but uh, relations are poor, like I said, with, uh, with the club's organization, with the police, but also with the media. Uh, relations are very uh, poor, and this is also found here. This was at the occasion of Gattuso, an AC Milan player who had been violent uh, at the previous match and was therefore criticized in the media. And this is uh, where the media is being criticized for having been so petty and uh, criticizing Gattuso for being violent. All right. This brings me to the Egyptian ultras. Um, there are no scholarly publications to date. Uh, like I said, there's only the book uh, by uh, Mohammed Kamel Bashir, also known as Jimmy Hood, uh, whose book may be translated as The Book of Ultras, When the Crowds Proceed Beyond the Boundaries of Custom, which was published in November 2011. He already started to write the book uh, before the revolution, and it, uh, so it actually it only has like less, a bit less than 10 pages which are really about the revolution, most of it is intended to uh, educate the readers, to let them know what the ultras are really all about. Um, Bashir begins then with a categorization of football supporters, where he says, well, you have people who watch it at home, they are irrelevant. And you have people who go to the matches, actually physically, and then there are those among these people who come when their team is winning, then they will cheer a certain team who's winning. These people are also not really relevant, you have to go to the people who support their team regardless of the results. Now, among these people, uh, you find the fans that are interesting to look at, according to Bashir, but they're not all equally interesting. He says, according, uh, he says, among the attending supporters, who are always uh, coming regardless of the result, you also have the, well, the official uh, fan clubs. And Bashir says the following, these official fan clubs, we can refer to its members as the white-collar gentlemen of the supporters' world, who have direct connections with the managerial boards, the institutions, and the players, who may finance them in a manner that may or may not be legal in exchange for something or other. So this is... <laughs> he actually suggests that the ultras have emerged out of frustration with the official supporters' organizations. He writes that the supporters' leagues gained media legitimacy as a result of their official character, even though they did not dominate, control, or even play a mentionable role in the club stadiums. So he's saying here, he's stressing the importance of making an impact in the stadium, and also making a point here of saying that you know, the media was collaborating with the official institutions because they were official, and these are all empty uh, uh, sources of, of, uh, of prestige. Then, how it began, actually, it's interestingly, the first ultra group to, to establish itself was in Libya in 1989, but this one was very quickly afterwards uh, closed down. Uh, and after that, you find in the mid-90s uh, clubs emerging in Egypt, uh, which eventually, would, the most two important ones are the ultras uh, from Al-Ahli, the ultras Ahlawi, and the ultras belonging to uh, or supporting uh, Zamalek, the, uh, known as the ultras White Knights. Um, Bashir indicates that the organization of the ultra groups in is elaborate but with little to no hierarchy. He mentions a whole range of, of committees that, that may be there. There is a committee in charge of getting the material to support, there is a committee in charge of making the travel arrangements, and there is also uh, a committee in charge of uh, finance. 
because the way in which things are financed, when you look at the devices that are necessary, it costs a lot of uh, money. Uh, but uh, Bashir in, uh, makes a point of saying that the ultras have chosen from the beginning to be independent in their finances so as to remain independent in their choices, thereby raising the banner that says that they're not for sale and that they don't belong to personalities, but rather to only one entity, and that is their club. Um, this account is actually highly reminiscent of what we know about the European ultras, its, its sense of purpose, its culture of anti-authoritarianism, uh, this uh, diatribe against modern football, and if his account is an accurate description of the Egyptian ultra culture, which I think it is, uh, then it should be seen as part of a transnational phenomenon with a shared set of ideals and a shared language. Now the question is, um, how did they politicize, how did they come to play a part in the revolution? In principle, the Egyptian ultras are not organized along political lines. Um, their existence serves no political purpose. Um, and when you go and look up the, the references to how they politicized or when they became politically active, uh, there are different stories. Uh, some would say uh, that it began actually on 25th of January. That's Bashir saying that until 25th of January there was nothing. Um, and then the question is, well, if that was the beginning, then how did it begin? Bashir says that um, they basically went from the beginning in order to support the revolution, which is contrary to some other sources. There is a source that says that that was Paul Mason, the journalist, who has one person telling him that they went down, sent by club headquarters, uh, in order to uh, beat up the protesters. But when they got there, they found them to their liking and they supported it which I find a bit strange, uh, because to refer to club headquarters, I don't, there is not really a headquarters. So I think this informant, you know, I mean, um, I think Bashir is, is, is more uh, uh, right when he says that on the 22nd of January, a video appeared on YouTube, posted anonymously, assuring those committed to going out to demonstrate um, that there would be an Egyptian squadron capable of defending them on the streets, and then they were showing images of clashes between Egyptian groups, and in particular Al-Ahli and, and Zamalek fans, which made it very clear that they were referring to the ultras. However, uh, Bashir does not mention that the message of the anonymous YouTube video which he refers to was countered by a clear and official denial by both the ultras Ahlawi and the ultras White Knights, some days prior to the start of the revolution. The Facebook page from Ahlawi said the following, Ultras Ahlawi declares that it is a sports group only, which has no political inclinations or affiliations of whatever kind. Therefore, the group is not participating in the demonstrations planned to take place on this Tuesday, 25th of January. And the Ultras White Knights said something quite similar, and both statements then proceeded to clarify that the individual Ultras are, of course, free to do as they please. Now, this is rather confusing evidence but I think it may not, in the end, be possible to really find out exactly what the ultras intended in the days previous to January 25th, because I think it's unlikely that there was such a thing as a collective intention to begin with. Did I mention this? Um, yeah, the Kuluna Khaled Said, I put it here because uh, in 2010, uh, the ultras actually adopted this, uh, uh, the project 
in order to, uh, to show in the stadiums that they were uh, part of the Kulina Gerritsay. And also previous they uh, made a point of uh, supporting Palestine in the stadium. Um, the Ultras is a social movement. Um, there is some work done, not a lot, uh, about the social political relevance of uh, football supporters, uh, the, the culture in football stadiums. James Dorsey is working on this. I think he is a bit too enthusiastic because he says that overall in the Middle East you find over the past decades uh, the stadiums having become uh, political pla places of protest, which I think is, is too broad, too broadly mentioned. I mean, there's no such thing in Europe, and there's very little information you know, on, on the basis of which you could say something so broad in terms of the ultra cultures in the Middle East. Um, then there is another person, uh, Andrea Testa, who has made a little study of an ultra group, uh, the extreme right-wing ultras in Italy, trying to see if they can um, be seen as a social movement, uh, which he believes that uh, you can indeed say that, and he does argue quite nicely. Um, but before I want to proceed, I want to define the social movement. The encyclopedia definition, so to speak, says, it refers to sustained and intentional efforts to foster or retard social changes, primarily outside the normal institutional channels encouraged by authorities. Now, this has been this notion has been brought to the Middle East by uh, Azad Bayat, among others, and Bayat also adds this more broadly notion of poor people's activism, which he sees uh, as engaging in street politics. He says, street politics describes a set of conflicts and the attendant implications between an individual or a collective population and the authorities, which are shaped and expressed in the physical and social space of the streets, from the back alleyways to the more visible streets and squares. And from there, I would like to add also football stadiums. Now, of course, there is a difference between poor people occupying the sidewalks of Tel Harp in order to sell their produce, which is what Asabiyaz is talking about on the one hand, and football fans occupying the terraces to cheer their team. But there is also a similarity in that both occupations are harmful to the credibility of the authorities. Both are also risky endeavors, uh, because you may get hurt if the authorities do crack down. Um, so both are risky endeavors that are being perpetrated nonetheless quite consistently and mostly with success. You have to think of that, how that the ultras in the stadiums uh, are very uh, elaborate in, in how to taunt the police and also making uh, political references to Zaltawi, uh, for instance. Now, at first sight, neither the international ultra movement in general nor the Egyptian ultra groups in particular qualify as a social movement. Yes, they are informal organizations consistently <coughs> pressuring the authorities in order to attain certain changes, but their organization is based on a shared group identity as ultras or football club X, Y, or Z. The key activities and ultimate concerns revolve not around society, but around their team. However, the, pre the, the question is, are they still to be considered mainly as uh, supporters of a particular team? And I think in the end, when you look at what they've been doing, the answer should be no. Uh, they will still claim to be supporters of a particular team. On the other hand, when you look at their actions, uh, in Port Said, uh, the massacre that took place there, after that there has been no 
matches in Egypt. Um, so in theory, the ultras are out of a job for a while. But they are very active. <coughs> we do see them a lot. We see them on Tahrir and in, uh, in front of the Ministry of Defense and on Mohammed Mahmoud Street. So when you look at their actions, they speak a lot louder than their official discourse. So in that sense, uh, they are acting as social movements, which is not so strange when you look at uh, uh, what they really, what they are. I will argue at least that the potential for social protest is inherent to the combined key components of the global ultra movement, which you find here: anti-authoritarian group dynamics with a youthful energy and uh, having this abstract idealism against the commercialization, uh, particularly of football, which, but of course, that can be uh, made bigger. So I will go to... Robert, the, I think we have to finish because we only have a quarter of an hour left for questions. Yes, so I will go to the conclusions yeah. then. Horizontalism, I will leave that, but <laughs> maybe for a discussion. Um, so to conclude, the Egyptian ultras are, I think, part of a transnational ultra culture, and this culture is congenial to politicized revolt, and they may be seen as a social movement. And to the extent that they can be seen as a horizontally organized activism, maybe that's something for a discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you very much.